2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll read verses 10 to 17 this morning, but our focus will be verses 16 to 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 10. And there the word of Christ says this, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, seeing that every word, Lord, that is in the Bible has been breathed out by you, Lord, it has your authority attached to it, and Lord, it is also for our good, Lord, a prophet to us, Lord, that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, we pray that we would have such a high and exalted view of your word, Lord, that we would see that it is divine in its origin, that, Lord, it is true in all of its content. Lord, that it has great authority attached to it, and that, Lord, it is always what is good and best for us. Lord, to obey you and to walk in the pathway of your commandments. Lord, this is what we desire. Lord, for you to teach us. Lord, to grant to us understanding. Lord, that we might know your will. And Lord, that we might do it. So, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen, Lord, confirm again and again, Lord, our belief in the sacredness of your word, Lord, in its purity, Lord, in its authority, its clarity, its sufficiency for all things. Lord, that we would build our faith upon every word of God. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, today we're going to begin a series of sermons that will culminate with a teaching through 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Right? This is the passage in the Bible that addresses the head coverings in public worship. Now, typically, our custom is to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. However, when the need arises to address a particular subject, then it's good for us to go to the Bible, seek the wisdom of God for whatever subject is on our mind. And this is a topic, I think, has been on the minds of many over this past year. Right? It was a little over a year ago that this passage came up in our own study, in our own reading, and after considering what it teaches, that is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we were convinced that the Bible does indeed teach the practice for women to wear head coverings in the public worship of God. And so it was a little over a year ago that my wife Amy began to do so, and then many others have approached us concerning this and have asked us why we were doing that, and we would explain these things to them, and others have been convinced as well and have begun this practice too. But up to this point in the life of the church, the teaching and the conversations have been 
uh, informal, right? We've not taught publicly, either on a Sunday or a Wednesday or any other church gathering on this topic. And so the result has been that we have a mixture currently in the church, right? That there's not a unity of faith concerning this issue. There are some who are practicing this and others who are not. And this is why I think at this point it is necessary for there to be a public definitive teaching on the issue so that at least we all have the same exposure to what the teaching and what the understanding is so that there's not a lack of confusion or a lack of clarity on the issue, right? And I think in this way that as a pastor, I have failed to exercise my duty towards the church in that I should have taught on these things earlier, but didn't do so because of the potential for there to be controversy in the church. But this is never an excuse to neglect or to ignore any part of the Bible, because if it's in the Bible, then it is for our good. And if it's for our good, then we need to know what the Bible teaches and just lay it out and then trust that God will work and use it as he sees fit. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. 2 Timothy 1, verse 6 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Here, the apostle says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, right? We should never be ashamed of anything that is in the Bible, right? If it's in the Bible, then we have nothing to be ashamed of, right? But rather, we should teach it, we should hold to it, even though there will be those who oppose what the Bible says, right? In any time, there's something new, right? Something that is contrary to what we have done or what we have practiced our whole lives, right? Especially when you're dealing with something like head coverings for women during worship, right? It seems odd. It seems bizarre. It seems strange, right? No other church is doing it, right? No one else is doing it. We've never done this in our life. And maybe we are a cult after all, right? That's what people will conclude. Many people have charged us with being a cult before. And so this will be more evidence, you know, that maybe we are crazy, fanatical, and out of our mind. But this is no excuse for failing to instruct the people of God in the word of God, right? The duty of the pastor is to teach the Bible, not some of the Bible, not those parts of the Bible that are easy to digest, but to teach the whole counsel of God and whether the people listen or whether they refuse to listen, whether it, the teaching seems bizarre or not, it doesn't matter, right? All that matters is what does the Bible teach, right? What is the will of God and what does God expect of us, right? That should be the theme of every church. What does the Bible say? Every church should be seeking this in all issues. Every Christian home should be seeking this in all issues, and every Christian person should be seeking this in all issues. I want to know what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach concerning this topic or that topic, this issue and that issue? What is God's declaration concerning the subject? I want God's will so that I can do God's will, right? That should be the desire of everyone who claims the name of God, and this is all that matters in life. Knowing the will of God, practicing the will of God, right? Nothing else matters. This is what is most important in our life. In my role as the teacher, 
is to make the Bible clear. To make it clear and understandable so that you can know what the Bible actually teaches. To give clarity so that you have confidence and you have conviction so that you know you're practicing the will of God and you have an ease of mind that you're doing what God requires and what God expects of you. This is the reason God gives teachers to the church. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. There, some translations will say, the shepherds, that is, the teachers, or the shepherd teachers, the pastor teachers. He gives them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ." For whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there the teachers are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith. The unity of faith comes when we're being taught the Bible and we are agreeing on what the Bible teaches, that there's unity in our faith, in our doctrine, in our belief, in our practices concerning the will of God and what it teaches. And this is why God gives the pastor teachers to the church, equips them with the ability to communicate and to teach the Bible so that they can explain these things so that everyone arrives to the same and proper conclusion. And this is what our goal is in this. So our goal is to teach what the Bible says and to try to make what may initially seem confusing, try to make it clear, understandable, so that we can have confidence and conviction that this is what the Bible teaches and then this is what we need to do. But before we get to that point, we need to lay the foundation, right? The foundation of the Word of God and what the Word of God is and how it is that we must receive Everything in the Bible, everything in the Bible comes from God, so there's no part of the Bible that we can dispense with. We must receive all of it, and that's why we're going to 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, because here we have a definitive statement concerning the Bible, its source, its origin, and its usefulness for the Christian in everything. So let's go back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here in this passage, the Holy Apostle is commending the teaching of the Word of God to Timothy, who is his son in the faith. He's instructing Timothy on how he is to conduct himself as a good and faithful minister of Christ Jesus. He reminds him that there are going to be persecutions that are going to arise because of the word of God. 
This because there are evil people and there are imposters who go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. There will be those in the church, those imposters that will infiltrate the ranks of the church, who will slip in unaware, and much of the persecution that arises against the faithful will come from these imposters who will revile and ridicule the true and faithful teaching of the Bible. So Paul is reminding Timothy of this reality and the need to remain steadfast and immovable in teaching the word of God, even if it means contradicting and exposing those false teachers who are leading people astray. He must devote himself to the simple, clear, authoritative teaching of the Bible. This is what is being commended to Timothy by the Apostle Paul. The necessity of a faithful minister to continue teaching the whole counsel of God, even in the face of persecution and opposition from false teachers. Now, he tells Timothy that he knows this by his own experience. He knows what the word of God is by his own experience, because from his childhood, he has been taught the sacred writings by his mother and his grandmother, and he knows that it was these sacred writings that made him wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then we come to verse 16, where we have this declaration from the apostle by the Spirit of Christ. A declaration concerning the word of God, its source, its authority, its usefulness for the household of faith. Notice what he says first in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture has as its source God. It all comes and originates from the same divine source. It comes down from the Lord, and it is His Word, His declaration, His judgments, right? And since the Word of God, since the Scripture comes from God, it possesses his authority. All of the authority of God is found, is bound up in the word of Christ. The Bible is not presenting opinions. These are not suggestions. The Bible is not a book filled with the ideas of men, but the Bible is instead presenting to us the authoritative judgments of God, right? God's thoughts, God's declarations concerning the issues of life. This is what God says on these matters. So whatever topic, whatever subject, whatever issue the Bible addresses, it is giving to us God's definitive declaration, his authoritative word concerning this issue and that issue. And since it comes from God, we cannot have a take it or leave it approach to the Bible. We cannot see the Bible as an opinion as a preference, as a suggestion that we can believe if we want to, but we don't have to believe if we don't want to. We cannot have this take-it-or-leave-it approach. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Again, all Scripture, not some, not 90%, not 99.9%, but all Scripture is breathed out by God. So how much of the Bible, then, is essential for us to believe? All of it, right? If all of it comes from God, then all of it is for our faith. It is for our benefit. We are bound to understand, to believe, to practice everything that is written in the scriptures. We have to reject this notion 
that some of the Bible is important and there are other parts of the Bible that are less important. This idea that some of the scripture is essential and then some of the scripture is non-essential. That there are some things that we must believe and there are other things that we can or believe or we don't have to believe if we don't or we have to do this or we don't have to do this. We can have differences of opinions and different ideas on this or that. Right? We cannot approach the Bible in this way because the apostle tells us here that all scripture is breathed out by God. It comes from God, and as it comes from God, it comes with his authority, the authority of God Almighty. And he is not issuing tips, suggestions, and opinions for men. He issues commandments. He issues declarations. He gives his judgments, his counsel concerning all matters. And it is our duty to submit to to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, to believe and obey every word of God, whether or not we think it is important or not. Right? What does that have to do with anything? If it's in the Bible, it's important. Right? Whether a man thinks it's important or not. If it's in the Bible, then it is important and we are bound to believe it. It is essential for our faith. If it is in the Bible, it is true. And if it is true then it is essential. So God is not blowing smoke when he speaks in the word of God. He's not just giving hot air out to the world, speaking so he can hear himself speak, but with no expectation that the people would actually believe and obey what it is that God has to say. This is not the way that God operates. When God speaks, he speaks with a purpose. And when he speaks, he speaks with authority, and we are bound to believe, to receive, to obey his word, not as a word from man, but as a word from God. And who is bound to this? Not just us, but every single person. Every single person who has ever lived on the face of the globe is bound to believe what God says. Now, most people don't, but especially in the Christian church, shouldn't this be true? We are the children of God. We are the slaves of Christ. And we are supposed to be dedicated, devoted to doing the will of our master. And the will of our master is found where? It's in the word of God. So we should want to know every word of God so that we can be sure to do his will. Because his word is an authoritative word. So we cannot have a take it or leave it approach to the Bible. A couple of passages to consider. First, Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30 verse 5. Every word of God proves true. Notice that. Every word of God. He's using universal language here both in 2 Timothy and in Proverbs 30, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So every word of God proves true. It's all true, and we should not add to the word of God. We should not take away from the word of God, nor should we add to the word of God, but rather we should seek to understand, to know, and to obey the word of God. Also, Psalm 12. Psalm 12. 
Psalm 12. And verse 6. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The words of the Lord, he says, are pure words. Pure. They're pure. They're holy. They are refined. They are purified. There is no mixture of error in the word of God. Every word of God is true. It is pure. It is holy. It is good. It is right. And it cannot be contradicted. No one can contradict or overthrow what is in the word of God. And if someone seeks to contradict the word of God, if they seek to overthrow the word of God, then what's going to happen to them on the day of judgment? God's going to contradict them, right? God's going to overthrow them on the day of judgment. Also, 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there, no prophecy of Scripture comes from a man's own interpretation, right? Though the prophets wrote the word of God, though they're the ones that God spoke through, what they spoke did not originate with them, right? It was not their own interpretation that they were speaking, but rather men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. This has to guard our view of Scripture, define the way that we view the word of God. The word of God has as its source God, Though men are the ones who wrote it, they were carried by the Holy Spirit in such a way that what they wrote is indeed the very Word of God without any mixture of error, without any pollution. It is the perfect Word of God. This is the way we have to approach the Bible. Any thought or any teaching that rejects the Word of God or any part of the Word of God does not come from the Lord but rather it comes from the father of all lies. It comes from the devil. The devil hates the word of God. He is a liar, and the word of God is what is true. Right? The word of God is the most truthful thing in this whole world. So what is the devil going to attack over and over and over again? Isn't this what he's been up to since the very beginning? Did he not, in Genesis chapter 3, seek to overthrow, to contradict, to subvert, the very word of God that was delivered to Adam and Eve in the garden. This is what he does. He hates the Bible. He wants to contradict the Bible. He wants to overthrow the very word of God. 
whether that be an outright denial, and there are those who deny the divinity of the Bible, like an atheist who denies the existence of God, who denies the existence of truth, who says that the Bible is just a book written by men, right? Well, if the Bible is a book written by mere men, then what authority does it have? It has no authority at all. Then we can pick and choose and do whatever we want with it if it comes from men. And there are those who would say that the Bible is just a book written by men. It has no authority, so we are not bound to obey it. Then there are others who are pseudo-religious and who will reject either all or part of the Bible. This is what you will find in many seminaries, many Bible colleges, liberal, co- liberal scholars, liberal commentaries, liberal denominations who teach that some of the Bible is from God and then other parts of the Bible are from men. So the Bible is a mixture, they say, of the Word of God, but also with the words of men. It is some truth and it is some error. And it's up to us to stand over the Bible, or rather, actually, it's up to the enlightened seminary professor to stand over the Bible and tell us what part is from God and what part is from men. But where does this idea come from? This is a devilish idea as well. Right, because if it's a hodgepodge of between God and men, then who gets to decide what part is from God and what part is from men? Well, some man gets to decide. But this puts man above the word of God. And that's not the way that it's supposed to be. Also, there is another way that people do this today. This is what is most common, especially in evangelical churches or churches that claim to believe the Bible. Most of the churches that we have been in our whole life they would claim to have a very high view of Scripture. They would say the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is authoritative. The Bible is inerrant. The Bible is inspired by God. They'll take their Bibles, they'll hold them up, and they'll say this is the Word of God. And they will tell the people every word in here comes from God and every word in here is true. But because the Bible is not clear, then we have to make room for different interpretations, multiple, various, different interpretations on different parts of the Bible. They will say on some things we can be dogmatic. On some things we have to say this is the way it is. But on many things that the Bible addresses, we have to make room for different perspectives, different views, different interpretations, and you do it your way, we'll do it our way, and in the end of the day, we're all good Christians and we're all going to make it to heaven, regardless of what denomination you're in, regardless of what you believe about this issue or that issue. Right? Because who am I? Who am I to say that my interpretation is right and your interpretation is wrong? And there are many different ways to interpret this passage or that passage. So we have to accommodate multiple contradictory interpretations of the Bible. And you can be a good, faithful Christian and believe it this way or that way. Right? All are good, acceptable interpretations. And we cannot say with authority that one is better than the other. We might even have a friendly debate about it an in-house debate among brothers, right? That's what they'll say. We might argue here and there, but in the end of the day, we shake hands, we hug it out because we're all good, faithful Christians, though our belief and our practice may be in direct opposition to one another, right? This is what I call golden corral Christianity. 
It's the smorgasbord approach to the Bible, to Christian doctrine, to Christian practice. We all go to the Golden Corral. Well, we don't anymore because they shut it down in Shawnee. But if we go somewhere where they've got one, you all go to the buffet line and you get what you want. I get what I want. You want chicken. I want pot roast. He wants a piece of steak. It doesn't matter. You get what you like. I get what I like. And in the end of the day, we're all going to be happy because we're going to have a full tummy. And this is how many people approach the Bible. Yeah, there's a few things here or there that we have to believe. But on many things... You do it your way, you take what you want, I take what I want, and we'll all just agree to disagree on many issues. And this because people believe that the Bible is not sufficiently clear on many issues. And that's the reason there's so many interpretations. right? If the Bible was clear, then there wouldn't be disagreements in the churches. If the Bible was clear, then we would all agree on everything. But because God is the most miserable communicator in the history of the world, therefore, we have all of these different views, and we all just have to accommodate one another and agree to disagree on many different things. This is the spirit of relativism. It is a spirit of pluralism. And this has infected the church today. This attitude does not come from God, but it comes from the devil because it undermines the authority, the clarity of the word of God. And it ultimately leads, practically speaking, to the rejection of many parts of the Bible. And I would say this is the greatest threat to the gospel and to the Christian church that is in our present day, relativism. This view of the Bible that some or all of it is take it or leave it. You can look at it this way, that way. You can look at all of these different ways. But how can two contradictory interpretations of any given passage both be equally true? Right? It's impossible for that to be the case. Can 2 plus 2 equals 4, and 2 plus 2 equals 5, and 2 plus 2 equals 6? Can all three of those interpretations of 2 plus 2 be equally true? Are all of those equally valid? They cannot all be equally true at the same time. They can either all be false, or one can be true, and the others are false, but they all cannot be equally true. And is anyone considered dogmatic, fanatic, a zealot, a madman, argumentative, arrogant, divisive, for insisting that 2 plus 2 equals 4? Do we chide any math teacher who corrects our children when they're little because our child thinks 2 plus 2 equals 5, and they correct them and tell them that, no, Johnny, that's not right. Actually, it's 2 plus 2 equals 4. Are we going to be upset with them? No. We're going to be glad that they did that because we don't want our kid being made fun of because everyone's going to laugh at them if they think 2 plus 2 equals 5. Why is it okay to be dogmatic in math? In science, in accounting, in engineering, in grammar, in literature, in mechanics, right? In any other subject in the world, do we not want people who know what they're talking about, right? Don't we want that in everything? When you have a plumber come to your house, do you want a plumber that doesn't know what he's talking about? Do you want one who's a relativist? Do you, or do you want somebody who knows what he's doing, who's dogmatic, who knows this is the problem and this is how it needs to be fixed? What about your banker? Do you want a banker who is a relativist? Who says, well, you may have $1,000 or you may have $10. I don't really know. 
we don't want that. We want someone who knows what they're doing, right? Who knows how to calculate these things, who speaks and acts with authority. But then when it comes to the Bible, what does everybody want? Take it or leave it. Everyone, no one wants somebody who's dogmatic. No one wants someone who says, thus says the Lord. What they want is, this is my opinion. This is my idea. These are my preferences, and you can take it or leave it. And as a minister, how can I be a faithful pastor, a faithful man of God, a faithful teacher of the Bible, if I get up and preach a sermon, and then at the end of it say, this is all just my opinion, take it or leave it? Is that going to be good for anyone? What benefit, what value, you might as well stay at home if that is what is going to take place. Or what if instead of thus says the Lord, I say, the Lord might have said this, but maybe not. I'm not really sure, so just figure it out on your own. How is that going to help anyone? What kind of a teacher teaches like that? Well, I can tell you what kind he is. He's worthless, right? He's worthless. He's good for nothing. So this view, this idea that we have to make room for many different varieties, many different expressions of the Christian faith. It's not from God. It is not from God, right? But this is what is common today. One man believes in creationism. Another man who claims to be a Christian believes in evolution. Though these two teachings, right, creationism and evolution, can those two things both be equally true? Are those two things compatible? No, they're completely in contradiction with one another. But they will say we have to make room for both because there are good Christian men who believe in creationism and there are good Christian men who believe in evolution and it doesn't matter on the issue of creation, we can have differences of opinion. But again, how can this be? It's either one or the other. It's either creationism or evolution, but both cannot be equally true. One of them is from God, and one of them is from the devil. So how can we accommodate a teaching that originates with the devil? Either the earth is 6,000 years old, or it's 3 billion years old, but it cannot be both 6,000 and 3 billion years old at the same time. Right? That's obvious, correct? I'm not out of my mind. I'm not insane. These are obvious, rational thoughts in regards to these things. So if the Bible is 3 billion years old, but I'm teaching that it's 6,000 years old, then I'm teaching a lie. I'm teaching a lie that comes from the devil. And I am a false teacher who is spewing out lies to my ruin and to the ruin of my hearers. I am deceiving and I am being deceived. If the earth is 6,000 years old, but someone is teaching that it's 3 billion years old, then that person is teaching a lie. And that lie came from who? Came from the devil. And on that point, this man is a false teacher. He's teaching what is false. Even if, on some other points, he may teach what is consistent with the Bible. But on this point, at the very least, we have to say that this man is teaching what is false, what is from Satan, lies to his own ruin and to the ruin of his hearers. And the Bible teaches that a little truth does not outweigh much folly, but a little folly outweighs much honor and much truth. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1. 
How many flies does it take to land in your food for you to throw the whole plate out? Just takes one, right? Just takes one fly, one dead fly to ruin a good plate of food, right? How much excrement does it take to ruin food? Just a little bit, right? It doesn't take a whole lot. A little bit, and you don't want anything to do with it. Ecclesiastes 10.1, a dead fly. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A little folly. So yes, even if this man teaches the Trinity, he teaches the divinity and the humanity of Christ, he teaches the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he teaches those things, but on the issue of creation, he teaches what is false, what is contrary to the word of God. Well, that little bit of folly outweighs his wisdom and honor. It outweighs it so that it voids it, and this man is not trustworthy and is no good. Right? Either way, someone is misrepresenting God. And misrepresenting God is a serious issue. This is not some light matter, but it is rather a very serious issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, notice here, this is what the apostle says. If he's teaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of believers, when Christ has not been raised from the dead, he says then we are misrepresenting God. And for him, that's not a little slight matter, as it is for many people today. They don't care. But for the apostle, it's a very serious issue to be found misrepresenting God. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. He says, we're testifying to these things, we're preaching these things, we're proclaiming these things, but if we're proclaiming something that's not true, he says, then we're misrepresenting God. We're liars. We're not doing what is good and right in the sight of God. So if we are teaching something contrary to the truth, this is serious business, right? It is a very serious matter, though, again, many people in many churches, they don't look at it this way today. They say it doesn't matter one way or another. All that matters is if you're sincere. But yeah, you're sincerely wrong. But that's not good to be sincerely wrong. We need to be sincerely right on things, right? So on whatever issue, whether it's creation and evolution, Right? Or what about the issue of election and free will? Election and free will. Free will, as taught by Arminians or semi-Pelagians, which is commonly believed in many churches today, cannot be reconciled with the doctrine of election that we believe, right? that we confess as our church. Both teachings cannot be equally true because those two teachings are in direct contradiction with one another. One is true and the other is false. If election, as we believe, confess, and teach, is true, then free will, as taught by Arminians, is a lie from the devil. And if free will, as is taught by Arminians, is true, then the doctrine of election that we espouse is a lie from the devil. 
And we are misrepresenting God because we are testifying and saying that this is indeed what the Bible teaches if, in fact, it does not teach it. It can't be both ways. It's one or the other. And it is our duty to study the Bible and to understand what it says and to put it all together and to believe, confess, and teach what is true. So all of that to say, when we come to 1 Corinthians 11, the passage either teaches the practice of the women wearing head coverings in worship, or it does not teach the practice, right? It can't do both, right? It cannot teach both. If it teaches it and we're not practicing it, then that's disobedience to God. That is a sin against God, whether we are aware of it or not. If it does not teach this practice, but we are saying that it does, then we are misrepresenting God. We are adding to the word of God. Two contradictory interpretations cannot be equally true. Right? And again, this is the sleight of hand taking place in the churches today. If you make the Bible unclear, then you cannot be dogmatic about anything. You can't make any claims to truth or error. And in the end... We don't have to separate from anyone. We don't have to upset anyone. We can get along with everyone because everyone's going to make it to heaven. Everyone is a good, faithful Christian. Every denomination is a good, faithful denomination. Everyone is a sincere teacher of the Bible. Though we may have many areas of disagreement, we just slap each other on the back and we agree to disagree. And again, according to our passage, we cannot approach the Bible in this way. Because when we tolerate this view, then we are undermining the authority of Scripture. And as we have seen in 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture is breathed out by who? It's all breathed out by God. And if it is from God, then it is true. And it is non-negotiable. It is essential to believe and to obey. So our attitude toward the Bible then should be an attitude of humility and teachability, and a desire to know what the Word of God says so that we can believe it and so that we can obey it, right? As it says in Psalm 119, verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. For what purpose? That I may keep it, that I may keep it all of my life. That's what he wants. He wants to know what does the word of God say so that I can obey it for the rest of my life. And that's the attitude we should have toward the Bible, toward all of the scripture. We cannot have a take it or leave it approach. We cannot have an attitude of to each his own. You do what you want, I'll do what I want, because in the end it doesn't really matter. God loves us just the way we are. We can't be like this. Now, some people might say, well, on some issues, we can be dogmatic. On important issues, like the Trinity, right? On the Trinity, they'll say we can be dogmatic. Or the person and work of Christ. On the atonement, right? On legalism, right? On uh, licentiousness. On these issues, these are essential issues. These are gospel issues. On these issues, we can be dogmatic. But on other issues... We need to accommodate different opinions and different viewpoints. And there are many people who will say these types of things. But what I always want to know 
and I've yet to be answered yet, receive a satisfactory answer to this. Can you provide one single verse from the Bible that teaches this approach? What passage of Scripture, right, what verse from the Holy Bible, what part of Scripture teaches this approach that on some issues we must believe the Bible, but on other issues it's take it or leave it? It's not found in the Bible, right? It's never found. Actually, the Bible teaches the exact opposite of this. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, the Bible does say that there are issues in the Bible that are more weighty. And there are issues that are less weighty. But does that mean we just have to obey the more weighty issues? And on the less weighty issues, we can just do whatever we want? Not according to Jesus. These are even red letters. So we're not even in the Old Testament. This is New Testament. Even Jesus is saying these things. Matthew 23, verse 23. This means Jesus was dogmatic, right? Jesus was dogmatic, so don't blame me for being dogmatic. Blame him. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a net and swallowing a camel. Right there, here, the Pharisees are giving great attention and detail to tithing on mint, dill, and cumin. But then on other matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, they are completely neglecting these things, and they're not doing them. But Jesus tells them the proper approach is to do the weightier matters of the law while at the same time not neglecting the other issues. Or, to put it another way, to do how much of it? to do all of it, to do the weighty matters and the less weighty matters, to do all of it, to practice everything the Bible says. So Jesus does not say, focus on the weighty matters and neglect or have a cavalier approach to the other matters. He says, keep all of it. Practice both the weighty issues and those issues that are less weighty. And even on some of these less weighty issues, things that may be considered less important, rituals and symbols, we do have examples in the Bible of God judging men with death for failing to take serious the instructions of the Word of God concerning rituals, concerning symbols. Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So here, Nadab and Abihu, they're not erecting an idol. They're not teaching the people to worship a foreign god. They're not denying the divinity of Christ or the Trinity. They're not doing any of those types of things. All they're doing is offering unauthorized fire before the Lord. These are rituals. These are symbols. And yet, what does God do? 
He executes them. He kills them for not following the commandments of God. Also, 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 5. Second Samuel 6, verse 5, it says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they had come to the threshing floor of Nakun, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took a hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gideite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gideite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. So here, Uzzah is put to death, Right? Again, not because he's denying some essential, some foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. He's not erecting an idol. He's not teaching people to bow down and worship a false god. He's not even blaspheming outwardly the name of God. In some ways, we might say that he was trying to do good because the ark of God, which they're transporting, not according to the word of God, right? that's the problem. They're not following the word of God carefully. And then whenever it begins to about to tip over, he doesn't follow the word of God concerning the ark. But he reaches out and touches it, and God puts him to death. And the ark is nothing, right? It's only a symbol, right? It's, it doesn't have uh, in itself, it's just made of wood and gold and those things from the earth. But it is a symbol of a greater heavenly reality. He's not touching the heavenly reality. He's just touching the earthly symbol, and yet God puts him to death because they did not take serious the commandment of the Lord. So all scripture is breathed out by God. Not some, but all comes from God. It has his authority and it is to be received by his people. And none of us has perfect knowledge, right? We know that, right? We understand no one has comprehensive knowledge of every topic and every issue and every subject that is in the Bible. But what we should desire is accurate knowledge, to have an accurate knowledge of what the Bible teaches. And as we go along in our Christian life, as we are taught more and more, as we read more and more, then we're going to grow in our knowledge. And as we grow in our knowledge, then we have to be willing and ready to amend our ways to change our custom, to change what it is we are doing if what we discover that what we are doing is not consistent with what is found in the Word of God. Also, back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, notice, he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, profitable. All right, so not only is all Scripture breathed out by God, but all Scripture, again, not some Scripture, but all Scripture is profitable, is beneficial, is useful. Now we have to ask profitable for whom? Beneficial for whom? For God or for us? 
for us, right? This is why God has given to us the word of God. It's not for his benefit. He already has all knowledge. He has all wisdom. He has all understanding. He's given these things for us, for our benefit, to be an advantage and a profit to us. From Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Revelation twenty-two twenty-one, In every word in between, every single verse, every single chapter, every single book, Right? Every single word, every letter of the Bible is profitable, is beneficial for us. And God did not breathe it out for himself, as if God needs instruction. He breathed it out for our benefit, for our good, to be a help to us. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Notice what it says in verse 1. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There he says, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, right? It's for our benefit. It's so that we might be instruction so that through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So the Bible is very beneficial to us. It is through the word of God that God gives to us our salvation. It is through the word of God that God sanctifies us and equips us for every good work. Everything we need for life and godliness is found in the word of God. And every single word in the scriptures is given by God for our benefit. That's why we need to read all of the Bible from cover to cover. Not some of the Bible. We need to read all of the Bible because all of it is given by God for us, for our benefit, for our profit. Well, if God has given the Bible for our benefit, then how can we neglect any part of the sacred writings? How can we neglect any part of the scripture if God says it is for our good, right? We can't do this. Our attitude towards the Bible, we should not look at the Bible as a burden, as something that is going to bind us, something that is going to ruin us, destroy us, make our life miserable and horrible, right? Who looks at the Bible that way, right? What Christian looks at the Bible as a burden, as something that is going to bind us and ruin us? This isn't the attitude of a child of God, we should never approach the Bible with that attitude, right? Obeying God is never going to be detrimental to our good or to our happiness in this life. No, our approach should be the opposite. I want to understand this passage, this verse, because I know that in its instruction is going to benefit me. It is going to be profitable for me. It will be a great value to me in my Christian life, and I want to know what it says so that I can incorporate it into my faith and into my practice. The Bible is never a burden. 
the instructions of the Bible are freedom. That is where true freedom is found. True liberty is found not in doing whatever we want. True liberty is found in doing the word of God. Sin is slavery, right? That is what binds us is slavery. Whoever is a slave to sin, whoever sins is a slave to sin. But obedience to God is not slavery. Obedience to God is freedom. This is liberty to walk in the pathway of God's commandments. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11 verse 28. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of Christ, which is obedience to his commandments, is a easy, light burden for us to bear. It's actually no burden at all. It is freedom for us. It is liberty for us. That is where the blessing of God is found. That is where our joy and happiness is found in doing the will of God. So not only is obedience to God the right thing to do, seeing that God is the one who has all authority, but obedience to God is also the best thing to do because it benefits us greatly in this life. So obedience is both right and good for us to do. So we have many motivations to want to know what the Bible says, what it teaches on every subject, and we have many motivations to amend our ways if necessary if we find that we are lacking in some area of our faith or in some area of our practice. And we should never approach anything in the Bible as if it is a burden or with a ho-hum attitude or a sour attitude because I might have to change something in my life. This is how many people approach the Bible. The Bible is a nuisance because it's going to affect the way I want to live. We can't be like this, right? And none of us, again, have perfect faith. None of us have perfect knowledge. None of us have perfect obedience. And will any of us in this life ever arrive at perfect knowledge? It's never going to happen. Right? Even the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, even he says and testifies that he only knows in part. And he's the Holy Apostle Paul who wrote so much of the New Testament. That means then, throughout our Christian life, we have to be open and willing to change, to repent, right? to amend our ways when we receive knowledge and understanding of the will of God. But many will say, well, we've never done this. It's new, right? It's novel. It's strange. It is foreign to us. Well, you know, I went 23 years of my life without ever being married, right? Being married was foreign to me. It was strange to me. It was novel to me. I had never experienced it. Yet, I happily approached the day of my wedding, And without any hesitancy, I made my vow to Amy because I knew that in marrying her, that it wasn't going to be detrimental to my life, to my happiness, to my good, but she was going to increase those things. So I happily changed my situation because I knew it was a change for the better. Well, how much more then in obedience to God? 
how much more zeal and joy should we approach the Scripture knowing that in God's Word, we are going to find instructions that are going to be very profitable for us, not only for this life, but also for the life to come. That's the way that we should approach it, like we did our wedding day, right? Who was... Now, maybe if you married a dud or somebody forced you to, you might not have been looking forward to it. But most of the time, people look toward their day of wedding, of their wedding with great joy. Well, how much more to be wed to Christ and to be wed to his commandments and to obedience to him? The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The law of your mouth is better to me, he says, than thousands of gold or silver pieces. Psalm 119, verse 72. Or how about Proverbs 8, verse 10? Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Wisdom from God is better than riches in this present life. And also, in terms of changing behavior, haven't we just witnessed an unprecedented change of behavior across the world in regards to what people wear, right? In my life, from 1977 to 2020, I have never seen people universally wear masks over their face, right? Never had it occurred in my life, but all across the world, people were faithfully, religiously, zealously, right, wearing face masks because the government told them that they had to do so. And many people did this without a second's hesitation, Though the government has neither the authority to compel such obedience, nor do they have the science to back it up. Yet people did it. And they didn't say, well, we've never done it before. They just did it faithfully, overnight, right? The world completely changed. Though the people never behaved that way before. They changed their attire because the government and filthy Fauci, right? That little liar was up there telling people that this is what they have to do. Well, if people can amend their attire because the government tells them to do so, though they've never practiced it before, then can we not do the same? Can we not amend our attire? Can we not change if we are convinced from the scriptures that it is commanded by God? Right? When in terms of face masks, there was no authority compelling us to do so, nor was it in our best interest, right? Actually, we now know it didn't help at all, and it was bad for health. But in terms of head coverings... We do have an authority who can compel us to do that. And according to our passage here, it is also in our best interest because it is profitable for us to obey God. So that's the approach we need to have to this passage. When we come to 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, right? You can't deny it's in the Bible, right? We all know it's in the Bible. It's even in the New Testament. And it has to mean something. So our duty is to try as best we can to understand its meaning and then incorporate its teaching into our faith and into our practice. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. And faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 11 is clearly in the Bible. Therefore, Its teaching must be a part of our faith. And if its teaching is not incorporated into our faith and practice, then according to Romans 14, 23, it is a sin because what we're doing is not proceeding from faith. 
Right? It is a sin against God and contrary to our own good and well-being, for all Scripture is profitable, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It's profitable, he says, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we neglect any portion of Scripture, then we will not be complete and equipped for every good work. And it is my duty as the pastor teacher to make the Bible understandable, to interpret the scriptures so that what may initially be unclear or confusing becomes clear so that you can have clarity, confidence, conviction that this is the will of God and then this is what I need to do. It is my duty to teach with such clarity and with such authority. Acts chapter 20 verse 18 Acts chapter 20 and verse 18 says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There the apostle says he did not shrink back. Though he may have been tempted to shrink back, he did not shrink back. But he taught them everything that was profitable, every word of God. So the duty of the teacher is to teach the whole counsel of God, to teach it and to explain it so that people understand it and they know what God requires. And then the duty of the listener, the duty of the congregation, is to be humble, to be teachable, and to be open to reason. Open to reason and willing to change if the Word of God calls us to do so. This is Luke chapter 8, verse 18. Luke chapter 8, verse 18. says, Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And for the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away from him. We have to be careful how we hear. So I have to be careful what I say, and you have to be careful how you hear. And when we're all doing this soberly with the fear of the Lord, then I will be teaching what is consistent with the word of God, and you will be listening, ready to believe and obey what is consistent with the word of God. And so that's what I ask, is that as we go forward and as we go into this passage, that we approach it with an open mind, right? We should always have an open mind, not toward the world, not toward the ideas of the world, but an open mind toward the scriptures. We should always have an open mind and seek to understand the Bible and then incorporate it into our faith and into our practice and have this desire to do the will of God. And I hope that that is what we will do going forward. So with that, let's pray, and then we'll sing our song of response. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord, that has been given to us by you. Lord, we confess and we know that all scripture is breathed out by you. Lord, it all comes from you. And Lord, you are not speaking just so you can hear yourself talk. But Lord, when you speak, we are supposed to pay attention. We are to sit up and to listen carefully to what it is that you declare. Lord, because 
These are issues of life and death. Lord, the Bible is, is not dealing with issues that just pertain to this life, but it is dealing ultimately with issues that pertain to the life to come, to eternity, to heaven and to hell. And so, Lord, we do not want to take lightly, Lord, any commandment of yours. Lord, give us this approach to the Bible, Lord, that we, Lord, that we desire to know what it says, Lord, above anything else. Lord, that we want to be as consistent and as faithful in our faith and in our practice as we can possibly be. Lord, we know that we are filled with much weakness here. And that, Lord, in this present life, we are not even equipped with a body to, to know you in full. That we only know you in part now. We see you dimly as in a mirror. We know in the life to come, we will know fully, even as we are fully known. We will see you as one looks face to face. But Lord, I pray that, Lord, as we are in this life and as we are gaining and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that, Lord, we would always be humble and teachable. Lord, and that we would be willing and ready to obey you, Lord, in whatever areas that we are lacking in. Lord, if it is in relation to our doctrine, to our belief, Lord, to our faith, we pray that, Lord, you would correct us. Lord, that you would teach us, that you would open our eyes and give to us proper understanding. Mm -hmm. Lord, if it is in relation to our practice, our obedience, Lord, our righteousness, Lord, we pray that we would be willing and ready, Lord, to change and to do those things that you call us to do. And Lord, may we be considered fools in this present world because we are obedient to you. Lord, we know that the life of godliness, Lord, a life of obedience Lord, it is going to seem very peculiar and strange to the people of this world. But Lord, it will not be peculiar and strange to you. But Lord, the way they live, that is what is strange to you. And that is what is detestable in your sight. So Lord, we don't want to be counted with them. But Lord, we want to be faithful to you. So Father, we pray that as we go forward, Lord, not only on this topic, but on everything. Lord, every issue that we address Lord, we ask that you would teach us, that you would guide us, and that, Lord, you would help us to have clarity in our understanding of Scripture so that we know what each passage is about, what it, what it means, so that we can believe it and practice it according, Lord, to the way you intend. Lord, that is what we want. We want our interpretation to be your interpretation. Lord, we want our belief to conform to your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Lord, help me as the teacher, Lord, to have clarity in my own thoughts and clarity in my speech, Lord, so that there's not confusion, Lord, there's not uh, darkness and, and cloudiness, but rather, Lord, there's clarity in what is said so that your people might come to the proper understanding. So, Lord, help us as we go forward, and, Lord, may we always, Lord, hold to this, Lord, to this truth, Lord, may it be foundational to everything, that all Scripture is breathed out by you, and that all Scripture is profitable for us. And Lord, we pray that you would equip us with the faith that is necessary, Lord, to do your will and to be complete for every good work. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.